Inga reo, inga waka, inga karangatanga maha, no mai, haere mai ki tēnei hui whakahira hira i te rānei. Me mihi katika ki te mana whenawa o Ōtoutahi, inga iwi tēnā koutou, kei akuranga tira, Tom Scott, tēnā koutou, ki a tātou katoa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Word 2018 and this conversation with Tom Scott. The first job that I have to do is I have to tell you that I'm Michelle Acourt. Uh, that's not important. Um, the other job is to thank Alan and Unwin for supporting this session. We're really grateful. And I'm really honoured to be doing this today. Tom is an award-winning cartoonist, satirist, journalist, screenwriter, playwright, uh, and now the author of Drawn Out. A seriously funny memoir. And over the next hour, we're going to have a free-ranging conversation about Tom's life and work and this book. Uh, and we're going to leave time at the end for your questions as well. So um, first, I would like you to make Tom very welcome with another tumultuous round of applause. And Tom, while I was preparing to do this, I recall that you and I first met in the 1990s doing comedy debates with people like Gary McCormick and yeah. Jeanette MacDonald. Trevor the Clean, Jeanette MacDonald, Jim Hopkins. Alan Grant. Um, yeah, the late A.K. Grant, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but, and I was quite starstruck, I don't know if that was obvious, because um, I started reading your columns and your cartoons in the 1970s in The Listener. Was that, it, it was the 70s, 1973? I'm ashamed to admit, I first started appearing in The Listener in 1973. Yeah, yeah. With a column and a cartoon, which, is that unusual for a cartoonist to also be a writer and, and to do both of those things? Uh, um, Tom Wolfe, the American novelist, started out as a cartoonist. And uh, quite a lot of writers started out as artists in various forms. But it's very rare that you, you do illustrate your own work. When I was in Britain a long time ago, I desperately wanted to prove I was good enough to work in Britain. I went to the Observer and showed them my cartoons and said, can I be a cartoonist in Britain? They said, yes, we, we love your work. We'd love you to be a cartoonist. I went to Punch magazine and saw Alan Corrin and he said, yes, you're good enough to write columns for us. And he sent me a letter, you know, please stay in Britain. But both of them said I couldn't be both. I had to be either a writer or a cartoonist, not both. But I was so excited to have proof I was good enough to work in Britain I got the train out to Heathrow and flew home. Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to stay in Britain. Well, that, that worked out really well for us. And so how long were you at The Listener? Uh, I went back. Um, it was 10 years, um, the first run. The Auckland Star offered to double my salary. And David Beeson was the new editor. He'd been there about three weeks. And I said to David, they want to double my salary if I go and work for them. He said, look, I'll stay if you just give me a third more, you know, just half what they're offering me and I'll stay. He said, I will not be blackmailed. You can leave now. So I was fired from the listener <laughs> for offering to stay for less than what the Auckland Star paid me. And then years later, when we were building granny flats under the house, I needed some money to... Um, you know, violins, please. And... Um, <laughs> I went back to the listener while I was doing a daily cartoon. I went back to the listener and wrote and illustrated a weekly column on politics for the listener again God. in the time of the Jim Baldry government. Yeah. Bad timing. The dullest government it has ever... <laughs> yeah, boy, it was a dull time. I worked really hard to make those columns interesting. But... Yeah. So I had another three years on the listener then, yeah. Yeah. Can, let's wind the clock back a little bit, though. I want to start... Go, go back to your... Childhood, well, I mean, you could have been a vet. Um, that was the other option, rather than cartooning and, and writing. Um, but let's go back to growing up and fielding Rongatia, mm. your family, mm. um, a pretty colourful family, Tom. You don't, you've only got one set of parents and you don't really know how they compare for a while until you see other people. And then it gradually dawned on us that our mother and father were absolutely astonishing. And, I mean, incredibly different, different from everyone else. My, my father was here. Mum would have people around for afternoon tea in our shithole house on Combolton Road. And my father would grab the teapot. He would come in and Mum would go, <laughs> and be quite nervous. My father was a good-looking guy like Bill Clinton. And he'd have all these prim and proper Combolton Road ladies all well-dressed. And my father would grab the teapot quite brilliantly. 
and he'd raise it up in the air about two feet above the cups and pour tea into a cup. And he said, what does that remind you of, girls? Yellow, hot, and streaming. Coming out of a tube with a droop in it. And he, he, he made the teapot urinate brilliantly. It hardly spilt a drop. And they would all go, oh, you. Mum would go, oh, isn't he awful? Isn't he awful? Pay him no mind, pay him no mind. And you just knew my father was, was different. We were coming through Cambridge on our only once ever holiday. We went on holiday one winter, went to Tauranga in the middle of winter. It was great. We were the only people in the motor camp. <laughs> we had a choice of 10 toilets each, 20 toasters, <laughs> hundreds of showers. And on the way back, we went through Cambridge and there was a fat woman on a horse and, it, and we had the Vauxhall Velox and we were driving along behind her and mum went, oh no, Tom, don't, don't, don't. And you could see an evil gleam in my father's eye and this woman's big bum was bouncing above the horses. Horses have huge bums. And this woman had a bum almost commensurate with a horse's rear end. <laughs> and my father wound down the window of the Vauxhall Velux and he said something which to this day I don't understand, but I knew it was terribly mean. He said, looked up at her and, and drooped, kept going alongside and she was nervous as hell on the horse. And he looked up at her and he said, all that meat and no potato. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but it's too, it's, and he would just say things that were just incredibly funny or incredibly cruel. My sister Jane, who's a beautiful girl, beautiful, really lovely, beautiful blonde, looked like Marilyn Monroe, and she would walk in, she had a slight weight problem, and you'll see now why it got worse. She'd walk into the room, my father would go, is that you, horse? Eight-year-old Jane. Yeah, you hungry, horse. Stamp your hoof twice for yes, once for no. And that's how he spoke to my sister Jane. Oh, dang, it's mean. So Jane has battled weight problems all her life because that's, mm. he was that bloody cruel, but, you know, that's what he was like. So you didn't go to other people's houses and find that their fathers were like that. So you sort of kind of knew you yeah. had a different, he was different. And your mother, so you've written a play about your father, Daylight Atheist, yeah. and now you've written a play, which I've seen and loved, about your mother, Joan. Yeah, Joan, yeah. Tell us about Joan, tell us about your mother. Mum, uh, mum was a simple Irish girl. She said, I, uh, <laughs> she only ever had sex with my father once. He was working, uh, building an aerodrome in Shannon Airport. Mum went for a ride on his Indian motorbike. And she said, we lay down on the long grass and I let him finger me and pretty soon I let him thread me needle, was her expression. <laughs> I've only ever had sex once, the once time only. She got pregnant with twins, me and Sue. And my father drove back to Northern Ireland quite happy with his one afternoon stand. And mum, to her horror, found that she was an unmarried Irish girl having twins, which was a great shame and disgrace. And in Ireland back then, mum knew there was a good chance that either we would be sent off Sue to Australia, me to Canada, or we'd end up in a shallow grave. And there's horror stories coming out of Ireland now, mum's stories, the Philomena story. Mum thought, I'm not losing my kids to the Catholic Church one way or the other. So she went to London and gave birth to me in London uh, in the coldest winter on record, 1947. But, so she was a simple girl, but her, when I went back to Ireland, all the relatives told me that mum was vivacious and energetic and flirty and wore red lipstick and jodhpurs and carried on as though she was from a sort of semi-aristocratic family, but she wasn't at all. But she was terribly bright and a lot, and a lot of fun, but life in New Zealand was not what she thought it was going to be. She was so disappointed and ashamed of how we ended up living. We, Came home from school one day and mum was sobbing on the couch. And I said, what's wrong, mum? She said, oh, <laughs> she handed me a letter and some relatives said, we're thinking of coming out to New Zealand to stay with you. And we're looking forward to staying in the two-story house and with the barn and the tennis court and the swimming pool. It was all bullshit. Mum had made this story up about how well she was doing in New Zealand. And mum said, what am I going to do? Oh, God. And I said, don't reply. Don't reply. They're not going to come 12,000 miles. I was eight or nine. They won't come 12,000 miles on the off chance you got the letter. 
And another time, Sue had just left high school to go and work in the Fielding Maternity Home. She was 15. She left school the day she turned 15. Went to work as a nurse aide in the Fielding Maternity Home. A week later, got a phone call from Mum. Oh, Sue! Mum was dreadfully upset. Oh, these relatives have arrived in Auckland. They're staying in West Shore, Westmere. They're coming down. They're getting a rental and coming down next week. Can you head them off? So Sue pushed bike to the Fielding Railway Station. She was 15. Caught the overnight train to Auckland, caught a bus out to this Auckland suburb, got off at the bus and then walked to this address for miles, she said, alongside tidal flats. 15, in about two weeks, knocked on the door of a stranger's house and these people answered and she said, I'm Sue Scott from Fielding. Mum and Dad have gone away on a holiday and I don't know where and I don't know when they'll be coming back so you can't come. <laughs> and he said, oh, oh, and then she said, bye. <laughs> and she walked all the way back to the bus station, caught the bus to the railway station, had another overnight trip on the train back to Fielding just to avoid the shame of relatives coming to see that we, mum hadn't won some kind of lottery and was living in a paradise at the bottom of the world. Mm. There's a bit in the book early on in your childhood where I went, this is who Tom is. This is this little story that you tell tells us everything about you. And it's the story of you walking to school with the beret and the, Oh yeah. <laughs> tell that story. Because I think this is who you are. Um yeah, well I was a little skite and it hard to believe now. I was a, <laughs> I was showing off one day at Rongatia School on frosty grass and I slipped down on wet grass and went straight into the moor, whirling moor of a big lawnmower, which they use to cut school grass. Luckily, I've got Irish bones, and my leg went into the blades and the engine stalled, and I was... They, my leg was saved, the lawnmower had to be put down, and uh, <laughs> I came back from hospital with my leg in calipers, my left leg in calipers, right up from my thigh to near my ankle, and I broke my glasses at school, so they were held up with sticking plaster. And then mum went off the hospital to have Jane, maternity. And we, people went away for about 10 days, fortnight in those days, when, before they needed it. And mum had bought all these new nappies. I remember she was very proud, she showed us. She bought all these new nappies, she washed them, to make them fluffy, and folded them and put them in the linen cupboard in our horrible house in Rongatia. And she went off to Fielding Maternity Home to have Jane. My father decided that I had measles, uh, sorry, um, ringworm. ringworm, and he pulled out his pair of hand clippers and said, sit down, egghead, and he shaved my head with the hand clippers, and if you move, you've got to whack with the thing. Don't move, don't move. So he cut my hair, and I had a bald head with little wee hedgerows of ginger curls, and I felt really stupid. He said, ringworm hates sunlight, this will cure you. So I felt so embarrassed. The mum came back from the maternity home, and I was wearing a frink, Spencer beret pulled down over my head with sticking plaster and my leg in a caliper. <laughs> Mum's mum opened the linen cupboard. Rats had eaten holes in every nappy. She burst into tears and was sobbing because she'd now had fine lace rather than nappies. And she wanted to know what was under my hat and I didn't want to take it off. I took it off finally. Mum burst into tears again. The next day I went to school and I was dragging my leg along the ground to Rongatia Primary School like this dragging it along, and kids were cycling past and yelling out. And I realised then that if I exaggerated the, um, the limp and was going, making it really bad, they all started laughing. And I, and I started giggling as well. I realised that if you made fun of yourself first, if you got in first, you took all the, you took all of the sting out of the emotional sunburn. And I learned very early on that, that making fun of yourself and telling stories against yourself was a good, it just, suddenly or other, they, they weren't shameful after all. Now, I got so good at it that Mrs. Ogle, they go on to Mrs. Ogle. The Ogles up the road from us had a Southdown stud farm. It was one of those farms that had white tops along the front fence, a big double gate, and they had a circular driveway, went round the tennis court, a huge house with a walk-in pantry and a walk-in chiller where you'd see half a bullock hanging up and they had orchards and barns and stuff. They were incredibly wealthy compared to us. Mrs. Ogle would invite me up 
and I would tell stories and I'd make Mrs. Ogle laugh so hard that she sometimes wet the pants at the dinner table. <laughs> and even then I thought, making a woman moist has to be a good thing. <laughs> she said, oh, I'm going to wet my pants. And then Mrs. Ogle, when I, when I wrote the book about the Ogles, I, I got a letter from Rosemary Ogle's daughter who said, yes, she said, I love the book. Mum is as wonderful as you described. And she told me a story about, um, about you know, they, they, they didn't, I, the book didn't offend them. They were delighted to be mentioned. And they said, we loved your mum. She was so colourful and so funny. And she was quite unlike any of the other Combolton Road wives. She was so different. And, and they all treasured her, really, because she was so eccentric. Yeah. I, I, it's just, you know, like, there's a path that you could go down self-pity or you could go down make them laugh, and you seem to make that choice in that moment. Yeah, my twin sister Sue, who was in the room at the same time, Sue said, how can you remember all of this? And my response was to uh, suck it up and, and jot it down somewhere in my brain, and Sue would just blank. She said, I can't remember anything until she was about nine. But I remember getting off the school bus one day, and Mum said, oh, kids, there's been a terrible accident. Your father's been hurt in an accident. Oh, yeah, it's awful. And I started sobbing because I was a big weeper. I was like, oh, 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 is he going to be OK? And then Mum realised she'd overdone it a bit. Oh, and he's got a flesh wound on his arm and required a stitch. No, might have just been the last to play whatever. Anyway, at the dinner table, in the imitation formica, Mum glued formica paper on top of the cowrie table to make it modern. <laughs> Two of the kids were sitting on apple boxes and, you know, real busted-ass house. And sitting at the table, and Sister Sue said, Guess what, Dad? Today, when we got off the bus, Mum told us that you'd been hurt in an accident, and Tommy, my father called me Egghead, Mum called me Junior, my twin sister called me Tommy, Sue said, And Tommy was the only one who cried. <laughs> I remember the look of horror and shame on my face. I looked at my father, and I look of horror on his face. He was Devastated because clearly he, he he didn't relate to me. He just we just had no connection at all. And Sue added, and you don't even like him. <laughs> and, and and then I boom, floods of tears, floods of tears. I was sobbing. I was a big weeper. And he's, my father said, and again he was terribly upset and a wee bit embarrassed. But he came up with a wonderful response, and it was just magical. It was just sheer brilliance. He said, oh, Egghead's having a grand weep. Well, someone fetch the weeping bowl for Egghead, please. The royal weeping bowl with the diamonds and rubies and the crust. It is a grand weep he's having, and he only deserves the finest weeping bowl. So, you know, I was almost dehydrated by the time I left the room. I was <laughs> sobbing and running out of the room, wretched and feeling terrible, for my, sorry for myself. But then I lay in bed and go, and I was going, weeping bowl, that's bloody amazing. That's, I mean, that's really interesting to be a tap on the window and mum would hand my dinner in through the window and I quite often had my meals in the room. But every time I thought, shit, these stories are astonishing. Mm. So, and I, and I stocked, I've stockpiled them I, and, and when it came to write a play, I wrote the play dry-eyed. I'd never shed a tear. You might get on to it later on. I, when my father died, I didn't, didn't shed a tear. But I was reading a, an article in uh, Metro by some Auckland guy, a lawyer, who wrote a wonderful tender story about eight, Roger, Warwick Roger used to allow people quite indulgently, they'd be 10, 15 pages on something. The guy wrote about his father and how much he loved him and how he held his dying father in his hands. And, I started crying reading that because I thought, I never had that. And I suddenly, for the first time, felt envy that I was denied that. But this guy's got fuck all stories about weeping bowls. And <laughs> 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 yeah. what, was, mm. what was it like to watch The Daylight Atheist? Um, it was exhilarating. It's been performed... It's the only New Zealand, it may have changed, but the first time it was put on, it's the only New Zealand play ever to have got the top billing at the Sydney Theatre Company, the Melbourne Theatre Company, the Adelaide Theatre Company and the Brisbane Theatre Company. It's been performed by two sets of actors and all those four main centres. And it's set box office records in Melbourne and um, won prizes. And I was sitting in the dark there with John Clark, Fred Dagg near me, 
And afterwards, it was Kath and Kim and Geoffrey Rush and um, Gary McDonald and all sorts of other top Australian theatre people in the, in the Williamson, the big playwright, tall guy, all in the theatre afterwards saying, congratulations, that's a fantastic play. And I, 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 I was just so exhilarated. I thought, goodness, goodness me. And the reviews were fantastic because fatherhood and parenthood are universal and everyone can see something of themselves in, in, in my story. The most amazing thing that happened afterwards that died off a bit now, though it started again with Joan, is that people will come up to me and say, my, everyone nurses, they don't need to. Everyone has little splinters in the heart. I took mine out at the time. But lots of people carry around little splinters in the heart that just become infected and you get a low-grade emotional infection. And people come up to me and say, my mother was a schizophrenic, I could never own up. Your play made me realise I don't have to be ashamed of that. I had an abortion when I was 16. Your play told me I don't need to be ashamed of that. And, mm. and it, it, people found it a release to, to hear that other people had these, their son went behind a cloud as well. Twin sister Sue said to me, oh, Tom, you don't understand. I live in Napier. People are going to point to me and go, that C. Scott, his father was the drunk. It's going to be terrible for me. I said, Sue, it won't be. People will admire you for surviving that childhood and being this wonderful, strong woman you are today. No, you don't understand small town New Zealand. So I said, Sue, how's it going, Sue? I'm being showered with praise. <laughs> 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 and so it wasn't that bad after all. And people are different with other people too. I mean, there's a couple of remarkable stories about your father's death. One of them is that you and your siblings went to, well, you went, didn't, went there to go to your father's funeral. And we'll talk about that in, yeah. in a little while. But there were people who went to your father's funeral who said, what a fantastic, warm, funny, kind. Yeah, yeah. The, the family, it was, it was a little private chapter funeral in Fielding. They, my father died and they tried putting his glasses on and he got married and he got not married. Before, yeah buried in a striped pyjamas. He looked like in a convict movie and, <laughs> and sunglasses on and the family were laughing and joking about him in the coffin. And, but they, Sue said, they did quite a good job. He looked quite, quite respectable. And then they went out into the chapel. My brother, Michael, who was a very funny guy, very funny guy. Mickey used terrible man. I haven't got stories, time for his stories, but Mickey gave a rude eulogy about my father just made up. And, and it was full of stories about my father and, you know, his callous cruelty and his drunkenness and blah, blah, blah. Then another family got up who we didn't know. I wasn't there. Sue and Jane and the others told me. They said this other family got up and described a man who was so warm and so patient and so kind. And Sue and Jane were going, who were they describing? And they realised that we, we represent different things to different people. And I said to Brother Michael, I said, my father is not your father. My father is, he, he was unique to me and dad was unique to you. So I don't expect this play to be about your dad, it's about my dad. And in this funeral, my brothers and sisters realised that there was a different side of my father that we never saw. He was just terrible at home. He got trapped in this terrible, be bad behaviour. And he just, he was like on a spitfire going into the English Channel. He just spiralled down, spiralled down and could never pull out. But he could be a completely different person with other people. And none of that got passed on to you or your siblings. I mean, you, you, there was a pretty dysfunctional childhood home. Yeah. And you, you all, you know, oh, there quite, are no alcoholics. Well, mum, mum, mum would say things about, there was no, um, I think possibly some of the marriages, children may have been born eight months after the wedding. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But um, mum would say, if you ever get pregnant, I'm going to put my head in the oven. <laughs> Only on roast. <laughs> I'll come out with a singed ear and it'll be our fault. But all of us, six kids, no one is an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, my brothers and sisters are fantastic parents. They're, they're, they're kind. Um, we all hate conflict. One thing I'm not good at my, my, my father's aggression, and it's true for everyone in the family says that, basically we're in almost a constant retreat mode. When the father was aggressive and angry and, and shouting and smashing things, we tended to retreat and pacify, pacify. So I'm not good in some work situations when 
you're arguing over a movie or a script or editing, and I'm patient and patient and patient. And finally, when I do get angry, I do it disproportionately, and I terrify the shit out of people. And I, suddenly, I realise I've raised my voice, and I said, "Shit! If I sound anything like the old man, this is not a very pleasant experience." But we 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 don't we don't we don't like losing our temper because the old man did it all the time. But he would he would do it in such an interesting way. He would come and pissed every night in Fielding, Owen Street, and he'd stagger, he'd urinate on the front steps of the veranda. Once when Sue and Larry were staying, Sue was brought Larry down her new fiance to stay with us in Fielding, and the old man knew that they'd be sleeping on squabs in the front room, pushed up against the double hum window. So the old man arrived home, Sue heard his car coming, and I hope he's okay. And the old man, with no curtains in the front room, just busted Venetians. And Sue said she was lying, her and Larry were lying there with their heads up against the double hung window on the mattress on the floor. And then she said, footsteps on the veranda. And then she heard the sound of urine drumming on the window. And the old man knew that Sue and Larry were just down there. So he had a pee on the double hung window, just introducing himself to his future son in law. But he would stagger in the house at night and say, Did anyone ring for me? Did the pulp ring for me? Egghead, did the pulp ring for me? Frank Sinatra, the Aga Khan, and you go on and on. We couldn't believe it. You come some nights on a good night, you come up with 40 names. And he was just making a comment on his own busted, reduced status. Mm. And we did, you just have to ride this out. No one would, no one would challenge him. No one leapt to their feet and said, You're a fucking disgusting drunk. I did once at university. I stood up to him once. And um, he said, Your problem, egghead, is you're a homosexual. And I say, I'm a virgin, I'm not even sexual. This is, the... <laughs> this is how desperate my life was. Second year at university, the world's oldest virgin. <laughs> oh, it's just killing me. But um, uh, I'm not even sexual. Just went off to bed and that, that was the last time I cried for him. I thought he, he pulled out the dirtiest trick he could possibly think. And because um, and, he was pushing mum around. And, and I said, that's it, no more for me. So when, he, when, he, when, he, when I did hear that, well, I predicted its death up in the mountains. I, mm. I shed, there was no more tears for him after that. So from fielding to Massey University, working on chaff, cartooning, writing satire, where, how did you get, where, where did it go after that? Well, um, the most amazing thing was at fielding ag, I, I, was, I was a virgin obviously, but I thought I had venereal disease. But I won't go into the details of why I thought it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I decided I'd be honest about it in the book, and it's an amazing number of people who, who, who <laughs> Anyway, in the seventh form, there was a show on at Massey University, a capping show, and all the kids, half the sixth, seventh form rather, seemed to have cars and licenses. I didn't have a car or a license. Didn't own a car till I was about 26. And they said, there's this capping show, Tom, do you want to come with us? And I was quite surprised that the, the Mandarins, the Brahmin, the upper-class people in the class, the children of the freezing works manager and the bank manager's kids and the doctor's kids and the headmaster's son, posh people, because we felt poor, the Scots felt poor. Um, they invited me to go with them to Palmerston, and I saw this review on stage in, in the Opera House in Palmerston North, and it was the most funny thing I'd ever seen in my life. And, a guy called Tony Rimmer went on to work with CBS in America. He was a bit like a John Cleese figure. He was fantastically funny. We were driving back to Fielding in the car in the dark, and a girl called Christine Wilson, whose married name was Christine Olson Levy, she actually wrote the film The Rabbit Proof Fence. Remember The Rabbit Proof mm, Fence? Yeah, yeah. She sat behind me in high school. Christine Olson, she said, Tommy, one day you will write shows like that. And there was the first bit of positive reinforcement I'd got from anyone. I couldn't believe it. Here I am, you know, I felt, you know, wheel down the social scale. And, they, and all the other kids in the car said, yeah, you will. You'll write stuff like that. You're very funny. And there was such a, a huge, bloody yeah. endorsement at that time. And I did go on to write those, those sort of shows. But it was the first time anyone had, because mum went to, it's a typical mum story, mum went to a parent-teachers meeting when I was in their sixth form. We lived at Marquino Road then. The house, when it rained, you had to run around and put every pot and pan out and catch drips, and, and it was an awful house. And the old man was drunk every night, and mum went off to a parent-teacher's meeting in the rain, leaving me to babysit the kids. So I 
put the kids to bed and mum cycled off. Sue had already gone to the maternity home. Mum cycled off into a storm to go to Fielding Ag parent-teachers meeting. And I looked out the window waiting for her light bobbing. It was still, rain was still streaming down when she finally came back. And she walked in the door and said, I had a row with your English teacher. I said, I was Tommy Scott's mother. And he said, your son's in Egypt. Your son is in Egypt and he'll amount to nothing. My English teacher. I've got an honorary doctorate in literature now from Mercy University. I'd like to, <laughs> yeah. He said, your son's an idiot. He'll amount to nothing. And I said, oh, don't worry about it, Mum. Don't worry about it. I got back at him quick as a flash. Oh, Mum, Mum, Mum. <laughs> oh, no, no. I got back at him quick as a flash. I put him in his place. Mum, what did you do? I said to him, I jabbed my finger in his chest, and I said, don't think your shit doesn't stink, Sonny Jim. <laughs> I don't think many teachers have been told that at a parent teacher. <laughs> He was as meek as a fucking kitten with me for the... <laughs> and I just had the ability to piss teachers off. I, I don't know what it, what it is, but a, I think I got it from my father. My father, I, 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 I was never late, I never stole, I, I was never naughty. I just irritated people in authority, even Ma when I was trying not to. So Maybe because they saw the talent and felt threatened, maybe? That's a nicer way of putting it. I just think I was, maybe, I, I don't know. Um, well, jumping forward, you pissed off Muldoon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, so let's talk about that. When Muldoon banned me from his press conferences, he got dozens of letters criticising him. There were editorials up and down the country saying this is a disgrace. He got only a handful of letters in support. One was from my father. <laughs> my father wrote to him, Egghead had it common. <laughs> and I got a letter recently from a guy called Dave Foreman, who went, I went to high school, a very brilliant guy, Dave. A little tiny guy with huge horn room glasses at Fielding, and he now translates Russian books into English and stuff. And he used to go into the RSA with his father in Fielding, and he said, he said, Fielding, I used to go back to Fielding when he was at university, and my dad would take me down to the RSA, and it always struck a sour note that your father, I was always wondering whether my father had a different view of me publicly and privately, he said, and always, everyone was so proud in Fielding, everyone was so proud that Tom Scott and the listener came from Fielding. And people were saying, Tom, you must be really proud of your son, you must be really proud of Tom. And my father said, famously, he's a flash in the pan. He'll never amount to anything. So my father, to his credit, I pissed him off the first time I met him, and he remained pissed <laughs> off for the rest of my life. But you were you were persistent with Muldoon as well, because I, I remember, you know, you were writing a weekly column at that point, mm. and you just kept going at him, and you didn't cow, you didn't, you kept on holding him to the flame, which just took. Surely a fair amount of courage. Um, it wasn't, I, mean, it wasn't that, I was in no danger. You know, I mean, um, being banned from his press con, which is, oh, it was a bit like Bria Rabbit, don't throw me in the briar patch. You know, oh, I mean, I don't have to go and sit opposite him any longer. I mean, oh, let me in, let me in. Oh, people in the fight, you want people to hold you, don't let go of my arms. You know, um, no-one no one went to jail because of Muldoon. I got sued for libel by him, and he made me stand up in Christchurch, actually, and it was a National Party conference down here. Ha! Tom Scott's here somewhere. Ha! He libeled me. Stand up, Tom. You're at the back there. You have to stand up, and the whole National Party cheered and whooped and hollered. People said, oh, do you feel embarrassed? Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel... And I, well, you know, after weeping bowl, that, that's nothing, you know. <laughs> um, I didn't mind. I'd made a mistake. And um, the only thing, the terrible thing about that conference was, that was the conference where Neil Roberts threw a chair out of my window and... Yeah, you got the blame for that. I got the blame for it, yeah. And Muldoon did ask the Chinese government to ban me from China, which they did. And he asked Indira Gandhi to ban me from India, and she didn't. So he never forgave India for that, and he pulled, closed our embassy in India. <laughs> That's amazing. You, at one point you said that 
Muldoon's demeanour, that his um, nastiness and lack of kindness had pretty much soured the whole country or at least made it okay for people to be unkind and nasty to each other. Yeah, he... Muldoon had this kind of a dark energy, more dark energy, as I described it at the time, more dark energy than his little tiny frame could hold. And he just was so aggressive. Austin Mitchell told me a story when he came up from, from Otago University to first as a young political science student, even though he was actually a graduate, sorry, he wanted to do a study of young politicians and he met young Muldoon when Muldoon was a backbencher. He interviewed Muldoon in Parliament. Muldoon was affable and friendly and obviously super bright. And at the end of the interview, it went really well. Muldoon said, where are you going now? I said, oh, I'm going up to Karori to stay with Eric Geiringer, who I met in Dunedin. He's a doctor up here now. And Muldoon said, oh, Geiringer? God, I really admire him. I'll give you a ride home. I'll give you a ride up. And Muldoon had an Austin 11. And they went outside to the parliamentary car park and got on Muldoon's little Austin. And they drove up to Karori, and Austin opened the front door and walked down the corridor to the back of uh, uh, Geiringer's house. And Geiringer came out of the, the kitchen and saw Muldoon and said, You can fuck off right now, you fucking fascist pig! <laughs> and Austin said he saw Muldoon on the edge of tears, staggering back down the steps to, to the car. He'd been rejected yet again. He was rejected all his childhood. Mm. Muldoon was a tiny wee guy with a ripped muscle on his cheek. His mum uh, brought him up alone because his dad was, had tertiary syphilis and was in King Seed Hospital. Muldoon would catch a bus out with his mother to see his father, and the father didn't know who he was. And Muldoon's teacher told a story to uh, Barry Gustafson that he would let Muldoon out of school half an hour early in the afternoon so Muldoon could get a bit of a head, you know, try and get ahead of the bullies who would chase after him. And he was beaten up all the time as a kid. Brilliant little boy, scarred face, picked on and bullied, and he gets to be Prime Minister, and he's feeling a wee bit better about life, and there's bloody bastard with red hair, platform sold shoes, flared jeans, mocks him in cartoons, and Muldoon thought he'd gone beyond. He'd escaped the gravitational pull of that kind of... And I, when I realised that years later, I said that he would have hated what I was doing because I was mocking him the same way he'd been mocked as a kid. So it stung and hurt. But near the end of his life, actually... Uh, Bob Jones rang me up and said, why don't we put on a dinner for Muldoon? Because he's dying. And I thought, I don't want to do a dinner for Muldoon. He, he said, why don't you show more grace to him than he ever showed to you? And he went to uh, Ken uh, Douglas and Ian Fraser and all of Muldoon's enemies and he said, let's put on a dinner for Muldoon, a black tie dinner, uh, just to acknowledge him. Because, you know, he was a prime minister and he was dying. So I agreed to do it. Muldoon walked into the room with Thea and nearly shat himself when he saw all these people. But people made affectionate jokes about him and he was crying at the end of the evening, crying. He was so touched by what had gone on. And George Chapman, the former National Party president, hissed at me when I was walking past his table and said, you've turned into an ass like a Tom. <laughs> and this, so George Chapman, when he, he was president of the National Party, Muldoon was prime minister. And I said, George, when Muldoon was powerful, I gave the bastard a hard time. He's now an old man and dying, and I'm being nice to him. When he was a bully and a tyrant, you licked his ass. <laughs> That's the high level of exchange we have. <laughs> That's a good dinner party. Look, I'm really conscious of the time, and the, there is another person, well, there's two other people I'd really like. I want to talk about Ed Hillary, who has been such an important part of your mm. life. Some people have suggested as a, as a father figure, but you have said no as a friend. Tell Ooh. us about that relationship. I and mean, there, in particular in the book, there's that remarkable story. I think it was your first time um, mm. up Everest with him and Mark Sainsbury, and you thought he was dying. It's an extraordinary story. It is. It's a story, it's such a significant story. When Ed wrote his last biography, it didn't make the cut but it'd be the first story Mark and I have in ours. I went to Australia with him to speak at a sesquicentenary dinner, and um, we got on really well. I introduced him to Jamison's Whiskey, and Ed loved it. And, and, I, and in my speech, I was the entree, and he was the main course in the big black tie dinner in Canberra, and I, ma I made fun of Ed in my speech. I said, we flew across to Australia at the same height as Everest, 
and outside the plane there was the same temperature at the top of Everest and Ed asked the air hostess for a blanket and went and sat on the wing for the whole journey and <laughs> wouldn't come in when we got to Sydney and, and when I sat down, Ed said, I walked, sat down beside this man, I'd only known a few hours. He said, oh, that was very good. I'll have to lift my game. <laughs> and I saw these steely grey-green eyes and I thought, you are still competitive. He was still, he wasn't going to be shown up by this fat, waddling, pink, balding cartoonist. So he got up and gave an astonishing speech. Absolutely astonishing. And he had the people were, and, you know, absolutely mesmerised and dazzled and amused by him and hang on every word. And he was very pleased. And he sort of, afterwards, when we had some more whiskey, he sort of said, oh, you, know, you pushed me in. You know, he was giving me some of the credit for the fact that he, he, he gave one of his best speeches for ages. And we drank more whiskey. And, and I said, why hasn't anyone done the story of your life? Oh, the right person hasn't asked. And I said, who's asked? He said, oh, Clint Eastwood and Robert Redford. And... <laughs> oh, they weren't the right people. And I said, I'd like to do it. And he said, you're the right person. Like that. We'd known each other less than a day. You're the right person. He said, come with me into Everest next year. So I thought, Jesus Christ, come to Everest. So I, I, I was an armchair you know, person. And I went off with Mark. I said to Mark, I'm going in, into the mountains with Ed Hillary. Why don't you come? He said, how do I, how do I swing that? I said, till TVNZ, he's very old and could die, and this could be his last trip. Survived another 20 years, but Mark wrote, a, <laughs> Mark wrote this heart-wrenching story about, hey, let's follow the great man in his last journey into the mountains. And as it turned out in Kundi, he actually got altitude sickness, and he was very crook. And he was uh, crook the first day, and then he hadn't got any better the next day. And... and we started giving him oxygen, and then we started running out of oxygen. In the middle of the night in Kundi, on the third night, at about uh, three in the morning, the oxygen stopped bubbling, and the Sherpas were all weeping and, and preparing for Red's death. There was a timber upstairs was banging away on the drum and the home gompa altar upstairs. June was in tears. Ed's old friends were in tears. Mark and I didn't know Ed as well, so we weren't as tearful as anyone else. We, we, we were obviously worried sick. And Ed was dying, and we were going to be up there with him. And uh, it was the tension was terrible, and it was snowing outside. And we thought, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen? And Ed sat up in bed and said, oh, I'd like capri. <laughs> and we looked around the room. There was, what? There's no, this, the Sherpas are very poor. They have bugger all. And this little room had only had one container. It was a former Edmund Shorterize baking powder tin. <laughs> and Mark said to me, Mark said, I'll hold the tin tom if you do the honours. <laughs> I thought I don't know Ed Hillary very well, but I just... <laughs> Ed, Ed was already blue from lack of oxygen, and, 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 and so I had to rummage around his wife, France, and get hold of his penis and stick it into the tin, and he started whittling, and Jesus Christ, his blood is the same size as his lungs, and it started, <laughs> started filling up and getting closer and closer to the rim, and... Mark started going white, and <laughs> and then, but as Ed was whittling, Mark said to me, grab the camera, Tom, we'll take the blackmail pictures now. <laughs> and Ed started to laugh, and I thought, oh, that's a good sign, for a dying man with a sense of humour. Then I went outside, got quite claustrophobic again, because the, the things got worse again, and we thought, he's not going to make it till dawn. And I went outside to get some fresh air at about 3.30 in the morning. And I looked around, and all around me, there were the eight of the top highest mountains in the world were in the dress circle all around us. And you could see they were there because they were dark black against this jeweler's velvet of stars. And you could just see these sawtooth pumpkin teeth. And in full colour, a friend of mine from the University of died of cancer, a guy called Tom Quinlan. In full colour, Tom Quinlan's face appeared in the night sky right in front of me, right up where that green sign is above the door. Right there he was, Quinny, in full colour. And there was a celestial wind blowing his very fine hair. He was a good-looking guy. He looked like a parish priest. And I said, that's Quinny in full colour in the night sky. And I said, I have oxygen deprivation. I went back into the room, which was claustrophobic and saturated with sort of grief already. Everyone was grieving already for Ed's death. And I said, and as I spoke, I was hearing myself. Very rarely, you do this, and the words came out of my mouth and round into my ear. So I heard myself the same time as everyone else. So I said, 
Ed Hillary is going to live, but my father has died. And they looked up and they thought, this is the last thing we fucking need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom's having a nervous breakdown on the mountain. <laughs> and we're going to be carrying Ed's body out to a helicopter in the morning. And I thought, shut up, don't say another thing. Lots of more, lots more things happened, and we finally got a chopper in. We got Ed onto the chopper. We all burst into tears. We were so relieved. We knew he was going to survive, and we choppered down through the mountains, weaving through these beautiful, unbelievable vistas all the way down to Kathmandu. And we landed in Kathmandu, and Mark and Alan Sylvester and June and Ed were there. Mark said, oh, yeah, your father's died, eh? He remembered, yep, your father's died, eh? And I said, I got quite emphatic and it was um, something I'd really ever do. I got sort of kind of angry and I said, my father has died and the manager of the Shangri-La Hotel will walk across the foyer and hand me a fax confirming that. I thought, where's the certainty coming from? I couldn't believe it. Again, I was hearing myself. He will hand me a fax that says my father has died. They all backed off a bit, and we pulled up in the van. We are all dirty and filthy after a fortnight, and we kept our bags, and we trudging into the foyer of the Shangri-La, which is a beautiful hotel in Kathmandu, and the manager in the tuxedo, so old it had a green sheen, came scuttling across the room carrying a bit of paper, which he, butter Scott, butter and he handed me a, a fax paper we will get to inform you that your father, Tom Scott Sr., passed away. And I was very gracious. I turned to Mark and went, see? <laughs> because I just had that sort of Nelson Mandela thing going. And <laughs> Mark said, what are you going to do? I said, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do. Maybe I should go upstairs and, you know, think about things. So we went up to the room that smelt of sandalwood and incense and stuff, lovely rooms. I sat on the bed and I thought, I don't have a single tear for that man. I'm glad he's somewhere safe and whatever he is. Um, and he's not in pain and he's not angry any longer. So I thought, oh, I might as well get down to the bar. So three minutes later, I walked downstairs and joined Mark and Alan in the bar and said, yeah, I'm fine. Let's, uh, let's, let's have a gin and tonic. And that's, and I, I think, why don't I get lotto numbers or something like that, you know? Some, <laughs> yeah. But I, I can't explain that, but having had it, gone through it with Quinny and the, the facts about my father, now nothing surprises me. There were, Shakespeare was right when he said, I think it might be Hamlet, there are more things in heaven yeah. and earth, Horatio, than are, was it contained in your philosophy? Yeah. And it's true, there are more mysteries out there than, than we will ever comprehend, and that's what makes life so interesting. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'll open it up to you lovely people to ask questions. But I, um, John Clark passed away while you were writing yeah. this, and that hit you quite hard. Here's a weird question, because I think of you and John in very similar terms, but he had to leave New Zealand to do what he did, but you have managed to stay here. How did you manage that? I'm, um, I remember when the Beatles came, I'm an absolute Beatles nut. My friend Anthony McCartan is doing the book. He told me about going to visit Yoko Ono and, and the Dakota building and discussing the film. He wants to, she wants him to write the film, and I was saying, you fucking bastard, I deserve that movie more than you, because I'm a generous person with my friends. And, <laughs> And he said, you know more about John Lennon than I do. I said, yes, I do, I do, I know, I should be mine. Not quite that strident. Um, um, so I was an absolute Beatles nut. And when the Beatles came to, to Wellington in about 1965 or something like that, or 64, I thought a journey of 100 miles was like Magellan or Francis Drake or Captain Cook. How could I ever travel that far to go and see a band I absolutely adored? Living in Fielding, a trip to Palmerston was a magical experience. We caught the bus once with Mum from Rongatia to Palmerston, and I looked up at three-storey buildings. The Colombo Plan student walked towards us. He was so black, he had a blue sheen. And we were walking through Palmerston North, and Mum said, don't stare at him, kids, don't stare at him. It's not his fault, the poor bastard can't help it. That's what... <laughs> And that was Mum explaining why this man, because I, I was always, I, I was terrible. Anyone in a wheelchair or with a walking stick or a deformity, 
I've always had the caricaturist natural cruelty. I've just, <laughs> I notice things. I notice people's noses and ears, and I don't even, I don't consciously notice it, but I'm, I'm surprising what I pick up later on. So going to Fielding, to Palmerston, was a magical, huge journey. Going from, moving from the Manawatu to Wellington was an odyssey. I felt like those people who crossed America in cattle trains and stuff, I felt I made this huge migration. And I fell in love with Wellington. There's a wonderful Maori word, Rachel's dad, Michael King, and his wonderful series, Taranga Waiwai, a place to stand. It's a place where not only do you feel like it belongs to you, you belong to it. And all the people in Christchurch who've stayed, in spite of the terrible scarring and, and pain you've gone through, you belong to Christchurch and Christchurch belongs to you. You'd know that feeling. This is your Taranga Waiwai. Wellington is my Taranga Waiwai. I need to drive around that south coast once a week and see the phosphorescent surf rolling in and crashing in. I need to see ocean and sky and mountains. Mm. I can't see that anywhere else in the world. It'd have to be New Zealand. So even though I was offered good jobs on a number of occasions, I've been in Hollywood promoted, trying to sell a movie on getting, making some traction. I say, if you can just stay another week, we've got a meeting. I said, no, I'm not staying. I, I, I love New Zealand. I feel very privileged and I'm so relieved that my father at least had the sense to come here. And he, he came here because of one story, which I, can I tell that yeah, story? Yeah. He, was, he told this story, he was in a bar in Munich after the war, he was in the army of occupation in Munich. And he was sitting in a bar in Munich and Germany was rubble. And there were New Zealand troops there, troops from all the Commonwealth countries, part of the army of occupation. He'd been in Canada during the war, he was part of the army of occupation. And he said, Omari went up to the bar and asked the barman for a beer. And the barman said, we don't serve monkeys. My father said, his Pākehā mates took exception and ripped the fucking place apart. <laughs> they absolutely trashed this Munich bar because this German had learnt nothing. And then my father said, a whole lot of bobby socks, a military policeman who used to wear white helmets and white spats and boots with white things on them and long batons, they came running and blowing their whistles, all these palms. The military police came running into the bar, blowing their whistles and waving their big long batons, and the Kiwis kicked the fucking snot out of them as well. <laughs> there were pummy policemen lying on the floor, bleeding and weeping, and New Zealanders wearing shorts in the middle of fucking winter. <laughs> they wore shorts in all sorts of weather. They strolled casual as you like into the bar next door, and ordered another round. <laughs> he said, that is the country where I want to live. <laughs> and he went back to London, went to New Zealand house and signed up as a Kiwi on the basis of that one single experience. And I am so grateful. And this is the country where I want to live. So I'm afraid I, I could not, I wouldn't be happy anywhere else. Yeah, that's a great answer. Mm. All right, we've got uh, just six minutes. We could take a couple of questions if you have some. I'm sure you do. Throw hands in the air and there are roving microphones so that we can hear the question. While they're thinking about it, can I ask you, is it harder to do cartooning at the moment now that we've got um, quite a cool, attractive Prime Minister? Does that make it tricky? A lady? Uh, um... It, for a while, you weren't allowed to be as mean to female politicians as you were to to male. I mean, Helen Clark, I was unbelievably mean to Helen, and people would tell me off for it because Helen's front teeth fold back in and they cross over. Her teeth, <laughs> her jaws, the same jaw as a shark's, basically. <laughs> the risk of sounding vulgar, you'd never really risk oral sex with Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, think she's yeah. offering. Yeah, yeah. Your prepuce would be in serious danger. And, uh, and I used to be mean about Jenny Shipley, and, and, but they all took it in quite good stead. In fact, when Gayling did her wonderful documentary on Helen, it's, if you're a political junkie, it's fantastic. If you're not interested in politics, maybe you won't like it as much. But I loved it. 
And it's a shame she's not head of the UN. It's a real, it's a bloody tragedy. She's really, really clever and really hardworking. But in her office in the UN building, up in the frame behind her desk, there was a cartoon of three All Blacks in a row. It was called the, the Front Row. And there was uh, Tana Umanga is one prop. I think Sean Fitzpatrick is the other prop, or Richie McCaw, I can't remember now. But the hooker in the middle is Helen Clark. <laughs> and she, the only time she's ever asked, that no, was Colin Meads. Colin Meads, Tana Umanga, because they were both people who were part of the delegation to ask for the World Cup to come to New Zealand. And Helen Clark was part of that. She went in. The three of them went into the, the mandarins in London who run world rugby. Colin Meads, Tana Umang and Helen went in and made the presentation and we got the cup to come down here. So when I drew the her, it was an all black, in the all black front row. That's the only time she's ever asked for a cartoon and it's framed and it was sitting up behind her desk at the UN. So I'll take that one. Awesome. <laughs> we do have a question here. Hello, Tom. Do you, in this age of discussions about free speech and how far we can go with it, do you see, is there a line that you wouldn't cross? I've crossed it frequently. Um, <laughs> in fact, they don't even ask to see my passport now. <laughs> there is hate speech. Um, I did a cartoon recently. I don't know if it's got in the... I'm in the Christchurch papers now, I believe. I did one about... Um, Hitler and our switch, I did Hitler in the Munich Beer Hall. He spoke vile nonsense, evil, foul crap. And, and if you are pre preaching hatred and saying that someone else, another group of people, deserve to be sent to their death and slaughtered, I don't think you could ever argue in the interest of free speech this person could, should be allowed to spout that. You can stay at home and stand in front of a mirror and, and shout it all you like in your own private room, but I don't think you should be allowed a public forum. Most of the gibberish people talk is, is, is people can see it's gibberish, but there's a lot of stuff on the internet now, you go, oh, this is really dangerous. I have done cartoons which have really hurt people's feelings. Um, I've been highly critical of Israel and the way they're treating uh, the Palestinians, and they get terribly upset and they have delegations that that used to come to the Evening Post, but they'd sit down with me and they'd realise after about three or four minutes that, you know, I'm a huge scholar of the Holocaust. I've been to Anne Frank's house. Um, I just believe in human dignity mm. and we're all entitled to it. And the Palestinians are being denied theirs right now, just on the vast, grotesque industrial scale the Jews weren't, weren't allowed theirs. So, there are no absolutes, but I don't believe you have the absolute right to, to spout hatred. And but there is, there is no, sorry, there's no fixed line, put it that way. And there's a difference between criticising somebody for what they do and criticising them for who they are. And your cartoons are aimed at what people do rather than... Yeah. I, I don't really think that much about it. Um, uh, I mean, I mock Mike Hosking a lot. Yay! Um, yeah. He interviewed me for my book, and he was up my bum like crazy. He, was, uh, he said, when you draw me, what do, you, what do you look for when you're drawing me? And I said, I get the photographs out of the Google, Michael. They've all been airbrushed to muggery. And I take whatever features you've got, and I distort them in the cruelest possible way. <laughs> to make you look hideous. And he simpered away on the chair and he was, uh, yeah. But unfortunately, people like Mike Hosking are flattered when you make fun of them. It doesn't bury me because it gives a lot of pleasure to other people when you, when you take the mickey. I mean, he, he, he's got a personal vendetta against the, the new government at the moment. And yes, I mean, um, they may be doing lots of things wrong, but it, not, he's like someone at a diving competition, you know. I may do a cartoon where Jacinda's up on the high diving board and Mike's already holding up a zero before she's even, <laughs> le even left the diving board, you know. And let her do a belly flop first, you know. Do we have another question? We've got time for one more. Oh, there's somebody waving enthusiastically. Sorry, I, I just can't resist, I can't resist the uh, Jacinda thing. I was going to ask you about... Uh, if you ever um, resolved your dad's stuff with your mum, 
but maybe I'll leave that because I need to ask you, what are you going to do about our Jacinda? Uh, because I can see it's going to be a real dilemma. Uh, no matter how she goes as Prime Minister, she's a wonderful woman. I think we all agree on that. Yeah, and yeah. it is going to be a real dilemma for political satirists uh, how to how to cope with the Jacinda effect because she's she's a bit of an Obama, isn't she? And she's spreading the message that what the world yeah. needs now is love. So well, what well, are you me, going to do with Obama it? And what would you have done twenty years ago? Obama should have got into office and um, closed uh, Guantanamo in the first week and all sorts yeah. of other things. He should have behaved swiftly and savagely. But Obama and Jacinda sort of believe that people can be reasonable, and if you present the right evidence in the right order, that people would change their mind accordingly. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen like that. She may be too nice, and she's gonna have going through a, probably a pretty tough learning curve right now. Claire Curran, there's no one's niece or nephew or aunt, or Claire Curran, <laughs> she should have been fired after the first sacking offence, the first time when she got Carol Hirschfeld in trouble. So she, I think Jacinda's gonna have to, have to, get, have to get tougher, no, no question. And, but it's, they've been out of office for nine years, these guys, and they never expected to win. So they were probably planning on me maybe taking over three years from now. So it, it's happened three years earlier, and, they're, and they're, they, do, they are looking like a bit of a prem baby at the moment. Right. I think that's it, unless somebody has a burning question. No, you have been delightful. You've been amazing. Tom is going to be available. The, his drawn-out will be on sale at the UBS bookstore outside, and Tom will be there to do signings uh, in just a couple of minutes. So in the meantime, could you please give a huge thanks to Tom Scott? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.